0: Let's pray. Our Father, uh, our years uh, uh, for many of us have been busy and tiring. Uh, December has perhaps been even more busy and tiring. And so we uh, come to this day. We pray that uh, you would sustain us and you would uh, speak through your word in these moments to remind us afresh uh, of the wonder of Christmas, the, the great glory of Christmas. We pray you'd open our eyes to see the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and that he might fill our hearts with joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully we're going to have a uh, picture pop up on the screen. I wanted to start by uh, showing you a picture of this painting. Uh, Sorry about the quality. Hopefully you can get enough of a sense there. I first saw this painting uh, about six months ago. I read a blog by a guy named Stephen McAlpine. He's a a pastor and kind of a Christian blogger uh, based over in Perth. And uh, Stephen really helpfully used this painting uh, to help me to piece together uh, some things that I've experienced in my own life and some things that I've observed in the lives of others. Uh, so uh, if you don't know this painting, uh, oh, whoop, let's go back to the painting. Very good, excellent. So if you don't know, th- this painting is called The Opening of the Fifth Seal. Uh, it's based on a, a passage out of Revelation chapter 6, uh, where a whole bunch of seals are being opened. Uh, it's painted by a guy named El Greco uh, way back in 1608. Uh, And maybe you can see that on the left-hand side of the painting, uh, I'll move over here, Uh, on the left-hand side of the painting, that's the Apostle John. Uh, So he's kind of longingly looking up to the heavens. uh, And all around him are the Christian martyrs, right, in the context of Revelation, those who've died for their faith. uh, And they're kind of also looking up to the heavens. They're crying out, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice to this world? Uh, Of course, the irony of this painting, as we've got it here uh, in front of us today, uh, is that even though John is looking up to the heavens with great longing, the heavens aren't actually there? You see, there's actually no heavenly part to this painting because sometime in the 1800s, the top one and a half meters of this painting uh, was just ripped off somehow. So there's this missing piece of this painting. So here we've got John, he's longingly looking to the heavens, but there's absolutely nothing there. And I agree with Stephen McAlpine that that is how lots of people today feel. We have this deep longing for for something more in life, something that's really going to satisfy us, uh, something heavenly even, something transcendent. Uh, We've got this innate sense that there must be something more, that there's something missing from our lives. And instinctively we find ourselves searching for that missing piece, even longing for that piece. Of course, it's not long before the kind of dominant story of our culture kicks in and we find ourselves thinking, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. There's no missing piece. There's there's no heaven. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing supernatural. This world is all there is. The sooner I realize that, the better it'll be. Well, today I want to tell you that if you're not a Christian, there is absolutely a missing piece in your life. That longing you have is true. Uh, and the missing piece that you've always been longing for, that you've always been searching for, uh, is glory. Now, you might not have expected that, you, you've been searching for glory, for God's glory. That, that's a pretty odd word. We don't use that word glory very much these days. Even uh, lots of Christians, people who've been around church uh, their whole life, if you say to them, well, what's glory mean? Uh, they'll probably be kind of clutching at straws. Uh, it's quite hard to define, in, in part because it's a lot like beauty, but right, how do you define beauty? All you can really do is point to things that are beautiful. Right? It, it, the God's glory is more like beauty than basketballs. How do you define basketballs? Well, it's round. Oh, that's easy. It's about this size. And like but God's glory is different to that. It's hard to define. But in, in an attempt to, to kind of define the the indefinable, here, here's a crack. I would say that the God's glory, right? What we've all been craving is the infinite beauty and majesty of who he is. The perfection of who he is. It's infinite. You, you'll never fully understand the beauty of who God is. You'll never understand fully understand the greatness of who he is. But that's God's glory. Uh, and the story of the Bible is that God created all of us. We can put, pop that uh, picture uh, away for a second. I'll come back to it later on. But the, the big story of the Bible is that God created all of us uh, to live in, to reflect, and to be satisfied by his glory, by his amazing, uh, beautiful, majestic presence. So Psalm 8 verse 5 says, for example, God made us, that's human beings, uh, a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. He made us rulers over the works of his hands. He put everything under our feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, uh, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Psalm 8, God created each and every one of us to rule over creation on his behalf. And we were supposed to do that in a way that, that truly reflected his glory. We were supposed to be a bit like this mirror. Right, this mirror is clearly not the sun. Right, It's not the sun, but it does reflect the glory of the sun. If I was to hold on the right angle, I might be able to get some of you in the eyes with it. Right, So this mirror is not the sun, but it does reflect the glory of the sun, the infinite beauty of the sun, the majesty of the sun can be reflected by this mirror. Right? That's what we were supposed to be like as human beings. We were supposed to reflect the glory of God, but we weren't satisfied with being mirrors, were we? We wanted to be the sun ourselves. We wanted to have our own glory, not merely to reflect God's glory. So we rejected God and we, we tried to find our own glory by looking to the people or things in this world. We, as it were, if that picture was still up there, having to just asked them to take that, but as it were, we ripped off the top part of that painting and all we're left with our, is ourselves and this world. And so we try to find our own glory in looking to the people of things in this world, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fuels. And and notice this bit in particular. uh, We exchanged the glory of God, glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, I I suspect most of you don't have a little carved picture of a bird or an animal or a reptile at home that you're going to go home and worship and offer sacrifices to. Maybe some of you do, but most of us don't do that these days. But the point remains that once you reject God in all his glory, once uh, you've made that decision to, to rip him out of your life, all you're left with is yourself and the stuff of this world. And I reckon, instinctively, we just feel ripped off. We just don't buy the story that our culture tells us. We don't believe that this world is all there is. We know that we were made for something more. This world just does not satisfy. So like John in that painting, we find ourselves longing for something more, for that missing piece of our lives and I'm saying the missing piece is God it's his glory the infinite beauty and majesty of who he is and the message of Christmas is that God has become one of us in Christ so that once again we can have that missing piece that's the heart of the mes- the message of Christmas once again we can live in and reflect and be satisfied by the glory of God uh, so we're going to look at uh, if you've got a, I feel like I'm sort of slightly off-center Uh, If you've got a uh, a, a kind of outline of the sermon in the middle of the connect card there, you'll see we're going to explore this idea of the missing piece of Christmas. Uh, We're mainly just going to be looking at verse 14 in this passage, John 1 verse 14. uh, And the key headings are the who of Christmas, the what of Christmas, and the why of Christmas. Uh, So first, the the who of Christmas, right? Who is it uh, that Christmas is really about? And, of course, maybe it's not surprising, or although perhaps it's increasingly so in our culture, but maybe it's not surprising from verse 14 uh, that Christmas is about Christ. Right? Christmas is about God's Son. So have a, have a look there, verse 14. Uh, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, you'll know that the, when John uses this title, the Word, uh, he's referring to God, the Son. And we even know that uh, from what he says here in verse 14. Look closely. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of who? Of the one and only Son, who came from the Father. Right? So this Word of God is the Son of God. And of course, lots of people really struggle with that. Right, they're kind of like, well, what do you mean? Like, did God have sex with Mary and out came Jesus, God, his son? You know, like, how did this whole son of God thing come to pass? Right, I want to say categorically, that's not what Christians believe. That's not what the Bible means when it talks uh, about Jesus being the son of God. In fact, it, uh, the reason I had the rest of the passage uh, read by Kirsty, thank you, uh, and you've got it in front of you, if you look back in verse 1, have a look in verse 1, John says, In the beginning... Was the Word? Right, once again, he, he's the Word there. That's uh, that's God the Son. Uh, so John's saying that the God the Son was. You see, God the Son already existed before the creation of this world, but before the beginning of time even. So what does that mean? It means God the Son was not made by anyone. Certainly, he was not made by God having sex with Mary. That is not what Christians believe. In fact, look in verse Uh, 3, John says, Through him, through God the Son, through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So Christians believe that the God the Son was never made. God the Son is eternal. Everything that's not eternal, this world and all that is in it, uh, was made by him. This is the first thing. This is the who of Christmas. The who of Christmas is God the Son. God the Son is eternal. God the Son is also personal. But he is a person who's always been with God his Father. Look again in verse 1. Uh, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he says, For all eternity, before the beginning of time, God the Son has been with God his Father. Right, enjoying personal relationship with him, loving one another, delighting in one another. So God the Son is eternal, he's personal, and of course he's God. Right? That's the rest of that first verse. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now I get that all this is kind of really complicated, it's diving in the deep end, Uh, and you probably, especially if you're here just for the first time today, you probably just want to know what difference uh, the Christian take on Christmas might make to your life. Uh, You really don't want a bar of all this kind of doctrine. Uh, What's it got to do with anything, right? Uh, But the truth is that the Christian take on Christmas thrusts us right into the, the depths of who God is. There's really no way around it. It thrusts us into the reality that God exists as one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And at Christmas, it's God the Son who takes center stage. God the Son is in the spotlight. Christmas is about him. It's not about... Santa or holidays or food primarily, although food is good. It's not primarily about family or presents, but it's about God the Son. It's about Christ. That's the who of Christmas. And then John tells us the what of Christmas, right? What exactly is it that God the Son does? Look at in verse 14. He says, uh, the word, that's the God the Son, became flesh, Right, so this is the, the kind of mind-blowing claim that Christians make about Christmas, that the eternal Son of God that we just described uh, took on flesh, Right, was born as, as the baby Jesus, uh, so that he could grow up to be the, the God-man, if you like, the God-man Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Right? That's a radical claim, isn't it? The eternal Son of God took on flesh. Right, go back to this painting. Can we flick that painting back up again, please? Excellent. As we go back to this painting, John is saying that in God the Son becoming flesh, right, being, being born in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that the supernatural realm, the heavenly realm, the, the transcendent realm, has quite literally broken into this world. But that's what he's saying. Not only does that realm exist, but it's broken into our world uh, in the birth of this child. Jesus, the timeless one, the one who existed for all eternity, humbled himself uh, to enter into this world of time and space. The one who created all things on whom everything is dependent, humbled himself to become a completely dependent baby. I don't know what they did with nappies in those days, but, you know, completely dependent. The one who is the word of God humbled himself to become a completely wordless baby had to learn to speak. That's what happened. That's the, the Christian claim of what happened at Christmas. The spiritual has broken into this world. Why did, why did the eternal Son of God do that? This is the why of Christmas. Uh, three reasons. We can take that off again. Thanks, guys. The first reason is, if you look in verse 14, the first reason is uh, because he wanted to make his dwelling among us. Right? The word became flesh And made his dwelling among us. Uh, Some of you are going to go camping uh, in in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you, You may or may not know that this word dwelling literally is the word for pitching a tent. Right? So when you're kind of setting up your tent, you'll be like, this is what God has done in Christ. He's pitched his tent among us. Uh, so this phrase could literally be translated uh, as the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Or uh, as older translators, uh, translations did, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacle, right? That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Right? But they, they translated it like that because they wanted us to see a connection back to the Old Testament. Right? Because in the Old Testament, uh, when God's people, Israel, were wandering through the wilderness, uh, God dwelt among them in this portable tent known as the tabernacle. So what's John saying when he when he says that in Christ, God has made his dwelling among us, he's pitched his tent, he's, he's tabernacled among us? He's saying that that tabernacle in the wilderness for Israel was really just a signpost pointing to Christ, who is like the ultimate tabernacle. But there are lots of ways in which that tabernacle Points to Christ. I'll just name two or three. I can't remember if I've got two or three, but anyway. The first is that the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. That's not to say that you can put the God of the universe in a box or that you can kind of restrict him to a tent. But it is to say that within the inner sanctuary of that tabernacle in the wilderness, in what was called the Holy of Holies, God humbled himself to dwell with his people in a special way. Well, That's incredibly humbling of God to, to dwell in a special way in that place. So, so what was called the, the Shekinah glory? It was like this, this glorious cloud that, that symbolized God's presence with his people. That actually dwelt in the tabernacle. So, what's John saying? He's saying that in Christ, God has made his dwelling among us, his tabernacle among us, uh, so that uh, once again, uh, sorry, he's saying that not just Israel now, but all people. Can come into God's glorious presence. You see, this has been kind of throwing the gates open so that all people can experience, can live in God's glorious presence because God has become one of us in Christ. Christ is, is the, the dwelling place of God, and because He's the dwelling place of God, uh, the tabernacle was also the place where people met with God. So if you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll see this reference to the, what was called the tent of meeting. Why was it called the tent of meeting? Because that's where you went if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to enjoy relationship with him. And of course, for Israel, there was a very select crew who got to enter the tent of meeting and meet with God. People like Moses, for example, Joshua. But not anyone, right? Not anymore, John says. right? In knowing Christ, in having a relationship with Christ, absolutely anyone can meet with God in all his glory because he's become one of us. In Christ, but if you want to enjoy uh, knowing Christ as the dwelling place of God, meeting with God, uh, you have to make Christ the very center of your life. But if you if you read the stories in the Old Testament, Israel would uh, move this portable tent; they'd set up their camp, uh, and the tabernacle was always right in the center of Israel's camp. You know, Twelve tribes, and there were three on each side of the tent. Because that's where God and his glory should be, right? Right in the middle of things. Right? It's like the sun in our solar system. Everything else in our solar system is designed to orbit around the glory of the sun. That's how things work best. Likewise, our lives are designed to orbit around the glory of Christ, like God's sun. So why did God, become, God the Son become flesh first? Uh, to make his dwelling among us, to pitch his tent among us, to tabernacle among us. Uh, and he did that, that we might see his glory. Have a look there. John says, uh, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Uh, when I was in primary school, my family and I uh, went on a holiday to Canberra, because they had the top 10 most exciting holiday destinations, and Canberra was up there, and uh, so we went to Canberra, and, and to top it all off, when we were there, uh, we visited the Royal Australian Mint. So that was a highlight uh, as a grade 5 kid, uh, the Royal Australian Mint, sorry, uh, so we went to the Royal Australian Mint, and, and when we were there, uh, we, uh, I don't know, has anyone ever been to the Mint? Hands up. You know, yeah, yeah. So if you've been to the mid, you, you might know that they make these coins, they have these big sheets, I don't know if anyone uses coins anymore, but they have these big sheets, they feed them into these large presses, and the, the machine's fitted with a particular die for a, a particular type of coin, you know, like a 10 cent, a dollar, two dollars, or whatever, and the press kind of comes down and out comes this shower of coins into, into the bucket or whatever it is underneath, right? And when we went to the Mint, I remember the tour guide saying to me, I mean, he could have absolutely uh, been pulling my leg, but it's a good illustration, so I'm going to run with it. Uh, he said that a skilled operator of one of those presses could find a coin anywhere in circulation. Right? They could find a coin. And if they examined that coin under a magnifying glass, they could tell exactly which die that coin had came from. Not only that, they could tell exactly the condition of the die. You know, like it wasn't nearing, you know, like how many, how many more presses did it have to go? Like was it a fresh one or, or an old one? They could tell that, uh, not, not, even without seeing the press at all, without seeing the dying. Right? I guess the illustration is that it's a bit like that with us and God. Right? In our sin, none of us can actually see God. Just like the coin person, you can't see the die. We can't see God. It would be dangerous for us to see God in all his glory. A bit like stepping onto the surface of the sun. go with This idea of the sun reflecting, giving us a picture of God's glory. Well, we know that the sun's good, right? If you respect the sun, the sun will bring life and light and, and blessing. But if you're casual about the sun, it's dangerous, if you don't slip, slop, slap. If you, if you think you can just kind of step onto the sun and, and see its full glory, I'm just going to go check it out. But that's, that's dangerous for you as a human being. It's dangerous for me. Right, so in Exodus 33 verse 20, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. None of us can see God in all his glory directly. But what's John saying in John 1 verse 14? He's saying that in God the Son becoming flesh in Christ, we can see an exact representation of God's glory. Just like that coin from the mint. You see, if you truly examine Christ... If you put Christ, uh, his words, his deeds, his life, his death, his resurrection, if you put all that under the magnifying glass, John's saying, you'll see the glory of God. That's what he said. That's what John and his fellow disciples saw. Right Even after just the first week of Jesus' ministry, uh, if you've got a Bible, you could flick across to chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, this is just after the, yeah, the, the, the events of the first week. Jesus had just turned water into wine uh, at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And uh, in verse 11, uh, John says, uh, What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he did what? Through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So he did the disciples, people following Jesus around, examining him, putting him under the magnifying glass. And John says already he's revealing his glory. And people are seeing that he is the one and only Son from the Father. That's why God the Son became flesh in Christ, so that in seeing him and examining him, uh, we might see his glory. Finally, God the Son took on flesh so that as we see his glory, we might experience the fullness of his grace and truth. This is the end of the verse. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is really wonderful news. I think that God's glory, the God's glory that we see in Christ, uh, his beauty, his majesty—it's full of grace and truth. Right? It's wonderful for us, in particular, that it's full—that uh, he's full of grace. I right? To so, know that the God became flesh. Not to judge you, not to condemn you, but to show you the fullness of his grace. Grace being uh, kind of the the undeserved love and blessing and favour of God. But why do we need God's grace? Well, it's because of this painting. Can we put the painting up again? Why do we need God's grace? It's, It's all about this painting. It's because in our sin, we've rejected God in his glory. In our own ways, we've ripped the top part of that painting off and lived our lives as if this world is all there is. And then we've sought to to find the glory that we were made for. We've sought to find that in the things of this world. So we take the good things of this world, things like work or family or children or politics or sex or money or power. We take any, any number of good things in this world, we take them and we try to push them up and make them ultimate. We try to make them godlike. As if you can just rip the god of the universe out of your life and replace him with something else. Imagine if you treated one of your friends like that. Your brother like that, your your husband or wife like that. Ah, you're replaceable. Rip you out and find another one they probably wouldn't like it. See, if God was to relate to us solely in terms of the fullness of his truth, his righteousness, his, his justice, we would all deserve to be rejected by him, to be judged by him. But in Christ, he becomes flesh to show us the fullness of his grace, you see. to offer us love and blessing and favor that we don't deserve. Of course, it's not cheap grace. It's not like God just forgives us. Like, like God in his glory can't just turn a blind eye to our sin. Can't just sweep it under the carpet as if it didn't happen. Right? If God is going to be full of truth, which he is, he must judge our sin as it deserves. And that's why in John's Gospel, if you read John's Gospel, I encourage you to do that. If you read John's Gospel, you see that the, the moment... Uh, of the fullness of the moment where Jesus is glorified, where He's put out the spotlight is most firmly put on him, is when he dies on the cross. Right, that is Jesus' moment of glorification. That is where we see the fullness of God's grace and truth. Right, even in the Old Testament, you see, uh, the, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle place, right, that was a place uh, where people offered sacrifices for their sins. Right, because if uh, imperfect and sinful Israel was going to live in the presence of a perfect and holy God, uh, their sin had to be dealt with. Right? The just punishment for their sins had to be paid. And the just punishment for their sins, right their sin that separated them from God, the source of all life, the just punishment for that sin was death, right? the death of a bull, a, a goat, a, a lamb. Uh, of course, you know that a lamb is not really a substitute for a human being. Well, you're convicted of a crime and, uh, and you're deserving of the death penalty. You're going to say, look, I'm not going to take that, but you know, here's my goldfish. Like the, the Lord's not going to be satisfied with that. Right? This lamb wasn't really a substitute for a human being, which is why God the Son took on flesh. Ultimately, he took on flesh so that his flesh could die in our place. So that he could die as the ultimate lamb of God. In fact, if you read just later in John chapter 1, where some of Jesus' first disciples see him and say, this is the lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Jesus dies to take the just punishment for our sins on the cross. So that when we look at the the, the fullness of God's glory at the cross, we see the fullness of both his grace and truth. When Christ died on the cross, God was absolutely true to himself punishing our sin as it deserved. But he was abundantly gracious to us because Christ bore that punishment in our place. So the who of Christmas. It's all about the eternal Son of God. The what of Christmas is that the eternal Son of God became flesh in the man Jesus Christ. Well, first a baby, then a man. And the why of Christmas is that he did that For three reasons, that he might dwell among us, that we could see his glory, and so that we would experience the fullness of his grace and truth. I want to say that that is the missing piece, not just of your Christmas, but of your entire life, really. In Christ, God and his glory has entered into this world, uh, that you might once again live in and reflect and be satisfied by his glory. I don't know where all of you are at today. Maybe some of you are Christians, some of you aren't. Many of you are Christians, I know that. But some of you maybe aren't. And you might say, but I wasn't even there to see Christ. So it's all very well for John and his disciples. They're walking around seeing Christ in the flesh, seeing the glorious things that he's doing. Of course they believed. And that's true, they did see him. They had a unique opportunity. But we've got to remember two things. The first is that there are lots of people who saw Jesus in the flesh and saw him do marvellous, glorious things, and they did not believe in him. In fact, they were so threatened by the glorious things that, they, that he did that they killed him. So don't sort of automatically think that if, you, if only you saw Christ in the flesh, you would have seen his glory and you would believe in him and embrace him as the missing piece of Christmas. No, you mustn't think that. Which leads to the second thing we have to remember, which is that John is actually writing his gospel specifically for people like us. He's not writing his gospel for the people who were there. They saw Jesus. He's writing his gospel for us, for people who have not seen Christ in the flesh. And he's assuming that as we read his account of Jesus' life and his miracles and his teaching, and in particular his death and his resurrection, uh, that spiritually speaking God will open our eyes to see his glory. In particular, to see the fullness of his grace. As we contemplate the fact that the eternal Son of God took on flesh so that ultimately that flesh might be broken in our place on the cross. That's the missing piece of Christmas. It's the missing piece of your life. I reckon it's the missing piece you've always wished existed. uh, But then, like like John in this painting, you've always wished it existed. Then you've looked up and you've gone, ah, this is all there is. You know, you wish it every time, isn't it? It's interesting. Every time you go, I don't know if you've ever read, say, a story like Lord of the Rings. You go to Lord of the Rings and you, and you think, yeah, yeah, there's a the world in darkness that's troubled. And then the great king comes back, Aragorn, comes back to bring light and life and blessing and to defeat the, the bad guys and, and bring about the world we all want. You think, what a wonderful story. Wouldn't it be great if that was true? That's Christmas. The great king has come back. The world that is, is kind of has all these enemies of sin and, and evil and darkness, he's come back as the light of the world to overthrow everything and to bring about a kingdom full of light and life and blessing. But this is how we operate. We longingly look to things and we say, oh, it's not true. That's why you like that story so much. That's why all the stories are like that. They're just pale reflections of this true story. This is the missing piece that you've been longing for. Heaven invading earth, the supernatural entering the natural. That we might once again truly live in and reflect and be satisfied by the God who made us. So I guess my encouragement this Christmas is to to reflect on this and perhaps to embrace this missing piece. Make Christ the the centre, not just of your Christmas, but really of your whole life. Embrace him, I Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to, uh, in the busyness of Christmas, uh, to just take these moments to reflect on what you have to say about Christmas, the who, what, and why of Christmas. Uh, We do pray in particular that you would open our eyes afresh to see uh, the glory of Christ your Son, in particular to see the fullness of his grace as he would give his life in, uh, in our place on the cross. Uh, Please, Father, help us to embrace him this Christmas, perhaps for the first time, uh, maybe uh, for the thousandth time, making him the centre of our Christmas time and our life. Uh, For his glory we pray. Amen.